Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knutson had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. Welcome to today's episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and we have a very interesting show planned for you today, which is going to be focused around the Stan Musial Veterans Memorial Bridge. The Stan Musial Veterans Memorial Bridge is a cable stay bridge across the Mississippi River between St. Clair County, Illinois, and the city of St. Louis, Missouri. We're going to focus a lot today on the challenges associated with working on a project that encompasses multiple state lines, agencies, utility companies, organizations, etc. This is a challenge that I'm sure many civil engineers face on many projects, whether you have to deal with five organizations or a hundred organizations. So I hope that you can find value in that aspect of this show. The way the show is going to go today is as follows. My co-host Chris Knutson is going to come on in a minute. And just for five minutes, briefly go over the Stan Musial Bridge and the Civil Engineering Project of the Week segment of the show. Chris happened to live in the St. Louis area the past few years while this construction was going on. So he's, he's kind of intimate with it. Then what I'm going to do is come back to you in the main segment of the show, and I'm going to go over six very specific challenges that the design and construction engineers faced during the project design and construction, and I'm going to share with you how they overcame these challenges. And this is directly from an interview with Jeff Church and Gwen Logman from the Illinois Department of Transportation that I did with them. Unfortunately, the interview itself, there was a technical issue, so we didn't have the recording, but I think it worked out better because I was able to listen through the recording and put together these six very specific challenges that they faced and summarize how they overcame them. And I think it'll be valuable for you as a civil engineer in your projects as you move through your career. The other point I want to make just about the show in general is we love getting feedback on the show. We're still trying to improve the show. It's a brand new show to us still. So we want to make it better. We want to make it the best possible show it can be for you as a civil engineer. And we received some feedback about the last show, episode eight, that wasn't great. And we agree. We think it wasn't our best show. And we've, we're going to kind of vow to you to improve every single episode. We've got some spectacular guests lined up for the next few episodes, and I, I think you're going to thoroughly enjoy them. So stick with us. Continue to send us feedback. You can email me, afasano at engineeringcareercoach.com. You could just visit our website at engineeringcareercoach.com and click the Ask Us button. The show notes for today's episode will be located at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number nine. The notes will contain a summary of all the key points discussed in the episode, which may be helpful for you, again, as a civil engineer, thinking about some ways to overcome different challenges on large, multiple organization projects. So with that, I'm going to hand this over to Chris to do a brief project description, and please take note of some of the points Chris makes. This is a big project. Listen to the budget numbers that Chris gave from the design the initial design, and then how they had to strip that down to get back on budget. He talks about some interesting technical challenges with the soil and also the time reductions in travel. And think about the impact as a civil engineer that you can have on a society when you think about this project description. All right, let's hand it over to Chris, and I'll be back with the challenges right after the project segment. 
This week's project is located near my previous home in St. Louis, Missouri. It's the Stan Museal Veterans Memorial Bridge, or known locally as the Stan Span, which spans the Mississippi River just north of downtown St. Louis. When the bridge opened in 2014, I have to say that I was at a loss for where the name came from. If you're a St. Louis Cardinals fan or a baseball fan, you probably know who Stan Museal is. I'm not. So I had to go do a little bit of research, and I found that Stan Museal, also known as Stan the Man, he was a 22-year veteran of the Cardinals, a first baseman, and widely considered to be one of the greatest and most consistent hitters in baseball history. And he also missed the 1945 season to serve in the Navy, so that's hence the, you know, the tie-in to the Veterans Memorial and the bridge's name. So, you know, as the bridge built in St. Louis, a lot of the folks in that region are, are absolute diehard Cardinals fans, and so it seems only natural that, uh, that the bridge would have ended up with uh, Stan the Man's name on it. So the main span of this bridge is around 460 meters in length, and it's part of a total span of, of nearly, nearly over almost 1,100 meters. It's 26 meters wide, and the cable stretch from the bridge deck to the top of two A-shaped towers, which are about 133 meters above the I-70. The new bridge's main span is supported by almost 1,600 kilometers of 15-millimeter stay cable strand, which is enough for nearly two round trips from St. Louis to Chicago. So it's just a lot of of cables. Project cost was budgeted at $667 million, and it originally, on the first design, was at nearly $1.7 billion. But uh, both the Illinois and Missouri state governments decided they couldn't bear that cost and asked for a new design. And that new design, which was submitted in 2007, came back with the $667 million price tag. Now, of that total, $264 million covered the realignment of the I-70 on the Illinois side, another $57 million to realign the I-70 on the Missouri side, and the remaining balance of around $346 million covered the bridge construction itself. Overall, the bridge required funding from Illinois, Missouri, and the U.S. federal government, which means that uh, a lot of different stakeholders with a lot of different uh, perspectives So the project took a little over four years to complete, and it opened the traffic on the 9th of February 2014. And I can actually remember all of the opening ceremonies, the news news broadcasts, and the different segments talking about different events like the walk, bike, and run across the bridge before it opened the traffic and the official ribbon cutting. So it's uh, pretty pretty fun to think about those that passed. Some of the challenges that were uncovered during this project included subsurface exploration, uh, which showed thick deposits of low-density sand below the water table. And this was a real threat because of the New Madrid fault line, which runs near the St. Louis region, and uh, the impact that could come from an earthquake if one were to, uh, were to strike uh, with a significant uh, level of intensity. So several ways to reduce that risk were considered, including an in-situ densification of the sands, but ultimately the foundations were changed to feature 3.7-meter diameter, 37-meter-long drilled piers, which were founded into the limestone bedrock to support the bridge's superstructure. Now, the bedrock is about 37 meters on the Illinois side and a little bit less, a little bit shallower on the Missouri side at around 18 to 25 meters. And foundation construction was also challenged by the deep, swift water of the Mississippi River in this area, so the site was very much susceptible to flooding throughout the uh, throughout the construction of the foundations themselves. And another challenging element uh, on this bridge construction was really on the Illinois side to the approaches where it was archaeological, and we're going to get a little bit into that also during today's episode. So until the stand spans completion, the St. Louis's Poplar Steep Bridge was really the main 
bridge between the Missouri and the Illinois side and the Mississippi at the St. Louis area. And it held the distinction of being one of two bridges in the United States that carry three interstates worth of traffic. That for the I-70, the I-55, and the I-64. So needless to say, the Poplar Street Bridge was always backed up. And whenever there was maintenance work underway, well, that backup was just, it was really, really mind-blowing. And in fact, we would make sure that we'd never had to travel to the St. Louis side when there was maintenance going on the, the Poplar Street Bridge. Now, the Stan Museum carries today approximately 40,000 commuters each day and eases the other traffic congestion on the other bridges about 20% for the Poplar Street and then 50% for St. Louis's other two Mississippi River bridges, the Martin Luther King Jr. Bridge and the Eads Bridge. And again, I know from personal experience that when the Stanmuseum Bridge opened, it greatly reduced the time to get to the St. Louis side, especially the airport, as well as just relieve the, the, the quantity of traffic going across the Poplar Street Bridge. Another benefit uh, from a completely different aspect was that the uh, Stanmuseum provided a secondary major crossing of the Mississippi River at St. Louis. So as I already mentioned, St. Louis sits near the New Madrid Fault, and it would be very much susceptible to any major seismic activity. And if a serious event did occur, this bridge provides a secondary thoroughfare across the river, a major connection in case of uh, evacuations or to allow emergency services uh, to, to flow between the two sides of the river. Now, one additional note is that St. Louis's Mississippi River bridges represent each of the four major classes of bridges. So you have cable stayed, which we find in the Samuel Zeal Bridge, a beam bridge represented by the Poplar Street Bridge. We find an arch bridge in the Eads Bridge, which was designed by James Eads, famous for the Eads caissons, and that could possibly be another project that we feature for a future podcast. And finally, a cantilever bridge represented by the Martin Luther King Jr. Bridge, an interesting point for, for us civil engineers. So that's it for today's Civil Engineering Project. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, so now hopefully you have a pretty good bird's eye view of the Stan Musial Bridge based on what Chris broke down for you. Now in today's Civil Engineering Conversation of the Week segment, I'm taking information from an interview that I did with the two Illinois Department of Transportation, aka IDOT engineers that worked on this project. And I'm breaking them down into these challenges. The first thing I want to do is I want to just give you a brief couple sentences on each of the engineers that I interviewed that I took this information from, just to give them some credit. Jeff's Church PE is a graduate of the University of Missouri, Rolla, with a BS in civil engineering. He has been working with the Illinois Department of Transportation since 1984 in the areas of construction, design, local roads, and materials. Since 2000, Jeff has been the project implementation engineer for the IDOT district that is responsible for the metro area of Illinois near St. Louis, Missouri, and was the deputy project director from Illinois for the new Mississippi River Bridge, which we are talking about in this episode. I also interviewed Gwen Logman. Gwen is a PE, a graduate of Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, and has both a BS and MS in civil engineering and is licensed in both Illinois and Missouri. Gwen has been with IDOT since 1999, working on location studies, geometrics, project support, and design. She was also involved with the construction of the Stan Musial Veterans Memorial Bridge and is currently a senior design squad leader in studies and plans. So basically, Jeff was heavy into the design side of the Stan Musial Bridge project, and Gwen was more active in the construction side. So I interviewed them both together, and the following challenges is what I got from them and how they overcome them. First thing, before we even get into the challenges, I asked them a bit about the naming of the bridge, and it was 
something that was decided by both the Missouri and the Illinois side. They agreed to the name the Stan Musial Bridge. As far as the type of bridge, the Cable Stayed Bridge, they looked at the different types of bridges and they wanted to produce a world-class structure for the community. Something that was beautiful to look at, but also economical. And that's how they came up with the idea of a cable stay bridge. And I think it's beautiful. If you look at this, and we'll include a photo in the show notes, it really does stand out. And it really is world-class. And that's the coolest thing about being a civil engineer, is you can create these quote-unquote world-class projects that someone can just see and say, wow, look at that. And not only is it a wow, but it's extremely functional, as Chris mentioned, and it reduces travel times, and it's a really positive benefit to the community. All right, enough of that. Let's jump into these challenges. The first challenge that Jeff and Gwen talked to me about was working with all of the different organizations and coming up with agreements. There was a bunch of railroad companies that they had to work with. They're working with the different state organizations. So how do you deal with just a large number of organizations? And their approach was to start early in the process, keep the communication lines wide open, and to build a good working relationship from the beginning. So starting early, meaning that they met with the railroad companies, the utility companies, way before even the design process. So early on, just to get everything out there, start to meet people, start to build those relationships. They had to have group meetings with these railroad companies all across the country to work through any issues early on. They also had to have daily and in some instances, hourly communication with these companies because of the fast-paced project, because of the intricate design and some of the other issues like archaeological that I'll get into a little bit later. So it was constant, constant communication. And I think the relationship side of it is something that I want you to take out of this because you have to understand that when you go into a project like this, you're living with these people, maybe for years, literally. I mean, you could be dealing with them every day for years. So you've got to have that positive, strong, open communication type of relationship from the beginning. So establish that early on. Challenge number two was just the whole idea of this workflow and communication. How does it really look, right? It's easy to say, communicate, keep it open, do it early. But how do you actually physically go through the communication process? So the approach that they took was very heavy on email. They used email to communicate and make sure that they communicated with a lot of people at one time. They also coordinated all their meetings by email, using whether a scheduling tool or just email to make sure they encompassed everyone. They also had a lot of phone calls and conference calls and group conference calls with the right people. But I think the key here takeaway is that when you're dealing with large groups of people, you need to find ways to communicate effectively. And you can't call 40 people, right? You have to use an email. And you have to email everybody and you have to include the right correspondence in your emails and the right calls to action. Challenge number three was the archaeological considerations to account for, especially on the Illinois side of the bridge. This was actually the biggest archaeological dig ever done at the time in the continental U.S. So they needed to be really clear about that to all parties invested on the project. There was a tremendous amount of archaeological investigation done. And the coordination between the design team and the archaeologists was absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. And their approach, again, was communication with the archaeologists. 
and the attention to the schedule. They had to put a tremendous amount of attention on how this archaeological dig was going to mesh with their construction schedule, and they had to coordinate it. They, from the beginning, they identified any critical areas that were going to be part of the process and how they would affect the schedule, and then they monitored them on a daily basis. So if you have something like this, it could be archaeological, it could be wetlands, it could be some kind of environmentally sensitive portion of your project. The first thing you need to do is get the right team in place, right? Whether it's the right wetland scientists, environmental scientists, the right archaeologists, you need to get them in place. You need to have an open discussion with them. You need to make them aware of your design intentions and how this may or may not be affected. And then you need to stay in touch with them every single day in every way to make sure that your design can still work, being sensitive to their needs and keeping the schedule and budget as needed. All right, I think that that's something that's really, really important because if you aren't clear and transparent with these specialists from the beginning, you're going to go through to a certain point and then you're going to be like, oh my goodness, we had no idea that you wanted to put a pier through here. You can't do that. You got to relocate this whole bridge. And then we're all in trouble. Challenge number four was an interesting one, the minority participation in the project. There was a requirement of minority participation to a certain percent. And it was a struggle for the design team to incorporate that or to make that happen in the project. And there were several different approaches that they took. These were extremely interesting to me. I've never heard of some of these. But for example, one of them with their approach was to set up a course at a local community college. This was a free apprenticeship training program in an effort to pool more individuals and candidates and increase the minority participation. So they actually had to set up a course at a local community college. Think about how they had to think outside the box to come up with that idea. And I hope that that can spur you for an idea on one of your projects. They had to really think about the service consultants that they were hiring or educate the consultants that they did hire on how they could help the disadvantaged contractors you know, to better themselves and make sure that they were able to bid on these types of projects and be successful. Almost like educating some of these minority contractors and possibly professionals to be able to be involved in a project of this magnitude. Based on the combination of some of these creative things that they did, they were able to reach their federal goal of 14.7% participation from minorities and 6.9% for women, and I commend them for doing that. They did a tremendous amount of community outreach to get buy-in from the mayors, the neighborhood groups, the emergency services, church groups, clubs, universities, And they really did a good job of keeping everybody updated. And this is a a message to you as a civil engineer is that if you think you're going to go into a project and just design it on a technical basis, you're not. You've got to be out there in the community. You've got to be educating people, talking to people. And that's something that I really took out of this interview with Jeff and Gwen that was powerful. There was also some risk concerns, right? There's a lot of risk in a project like this. You've got the archaeological concerns. You've got soil concerns. You've got your cross state. You've got a waterway, a major waterway beneath this project. So how did they handle all the risk concerns? They did a very detailed risk analysis. They presented the risk analysis to the communities. They ranked things in order of one to five, and then they developed solutions ahead of time for each one of these risks. Honestly, I've worked on a lot of civil engineering projects. I never had to deal with a risk concern like this or a risk analysis, but it was really refreshing to hear about it to understand that on large, large scale projects like this, the risk is being evaluated and there are solutions ahead of time to deal with that risk. So 
you may be a civil engineer and not even realize that risk analysis is something that you may be able to work on. It sounds to me like it'd be an extraordinary, interesting thing to work on, and maybe it's something to keep an eye on in your career. Challenge number six was one I think that everyone will appreciate. For Jeff and Gwen, it was managing this project when it wasn't their only project they were managing. So I kind of asked them, you know, what were some of the tools and taxes that they used to be able to manage this project with all these other projects? So Jeff told me that during the four years of this project, he dedicated about 30% of his time to this project. And what he tried to do to really be able to maximize that time was he had weekly meetings with the project team every Tuesday morning with the Missouri Department of Transportation. And then Tuesday afternoon, he would meet with the Illinois Department of Transportation. He had a method, he had a system. He also had regular meetings with the contractors. And he often had to present in these meetings. And that was something that he had to make sure that he was able to present the information from one meeting to people at the other meeting to keep everyone on the same page. Gwen's biggest tip for managing this along with other projects was to have a really clear list of action items that you take out of every meeting. And I love that because I can't tell you as a civil engineer how many meetings I went that I thought were a waste of time because nobody took away action items. So those were the six challenges that they faced on this project. The overall dealing with the railroad companies and utility companies was challenge one. Challenge two is the workflow communication when you're dealing with all these different municipalities. Challenge three was the archaeological considerations and how they accounted for that and how they dealt with that. Challenge four was the minority participation and they got really creative about that and did a great job with it. Challenge five was the risk concerns and risk analysis that was done. And challenge number six was managing such a large project when it's not your own project. So to end the interview with Jeff and Gwen, I asked the question I always ask, the civil engineering career elevator question, basically saying, if there was just one thing that they could tell a civil engineer that they really should focus on in their career development, what would it be? And Jeff's answer was to overcome the fear of public speaking. And to do that, he said, you have to get really comfortable with your topic, know what you're talking about, be really focused on your talking points for whatever the issue is, and focus on talking about those points. And he said, just do it time and time and time again. And he said for him personally, coming out of this project, it was one of the best things for him on a personal development, career development standpoint was he had to present so many times that it really, really improved his speaking skills and his overall career is going to be better for that. Gwen, her tip is that you have to learn how to communicate with various departments and different agencies because they all play a different role in your project. You need to understand on every project what each department does when you need to go to a certain department, when you need to ask them a question, when you need to bring them up to speed, and how you need to best work with them to move the project forward. I thought they were both phenomenal pieces of advice. Improve your public speaking and understand the different departments on your project and when and how to deal with them best. I want to thank Jeff and Gwen for doing this interview. Uh, The information I thought was very helpful. And thank you so much to you as the listeners. Remember, you can continue to make the show better by sending us feedback. For this episode, you can go to civilengineeringpodcast.com, look for episode number nine, leave us comments. Chris and I respond to every single comment, and we'd love to engage in some feedback with you. Until next week, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. 
Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com, where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.